Now, we could give them evidence saying he has hit 95% of his top speed three times this week. So we know he can sprint in a controlled environment, not in a stadium, not too fatigued. But you could give them a lot of information. But it, yeah, it did end up being, how sure are you that he can play? And if there was any doubt, it, it did end up becoming a chat for physio and doc, fitness coach sometimes, manager, and don't forget, player we could all be telling that player you're fine you're fine you're fine if he didn't think he was ready for the Saturday what would would be the point of throwing him to the wolves hello there and a very warm welcome or welcome back to the podcast my name is Steve Ingham I'm an applied scientist and leader from the world of high-performance sport. And on the podcast, I explore all aspects of human performance, whether that is getting stronger, fitter, mentally more prepared, eating better, playing better, leading and coaching in different ways, but also how we perform in work, individually and as teams. And the way I do that is by speaking with great scientists, practitioners, researchers, coaches, athletes and entrepreneurs. I'm also keen to talk to people from outside of sports, people who are just interested in how we perform as humans. If you enjoy the podcast, then please do share it with friends and colleagues and be sure to subscribe. And if you want to support and champion us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. So this week's guest is Colin Lewin. So Colin was Arsenal Football Club's physiotherapist from 2005 to 2018 making that a total of 22 years of frontline medical support in elite football. Acting both as physio and later as head of medical services, Colin oversaw the creation of Arsenal's outstanding purpose-built medical facilities in 2012 and the £17 million player performance centre, and as part of that, implementing the research and development arm to the medical team. So Colin now runs the Lewin Clinic in Essex, and consults with a number of football clubs, NBA, NHL, NFL, Major League Baseball teams. Colin has such depth of experience and has seen a radical redevelopment of support teams in football under the guidance of one of the game's pioneers, Arsene Wenger. And this came out in our conversation with real perspective that he has. I think it's necessary not only as clubs grow and get caught in a performance science and medicine arms race, also balancing the need to actually do impactful work, not just do what a player or a coach fancies doing on a whim. This is typified, I think, with the growth of independent player support teams. So players drawing in their own experts independent of the club. I've always enjoyed conversations with Colin over the years. He's a relaxed, down-to-earth approach that is so easy to imagine gelling in an elite team. His grounded self-awareness comes through this conversation, being prepared to just say, you know what, I don't know. But equally with a strength of opinion where he sees support teams misfiring. And with that, you'll hear his wealth of wisdom and passion to make the game better. Well, Colin, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Steve. No, no, no. no. It's, it's been great to um, chat to you over the years, but but be lovely to to reflect a little bit and, and capture some of your experiences over the time. Um, so, look, I mean, you've had a, uh, a long and illustrious career. Um, Arsenal, purely Arsenal, wasn't it? I think, um, I haven't checked my notes on this, but um, you have to correct me. Yeah, pretty much. 23 years? Yeah, 23 seasons, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Did did you play, Colin? No, you're mad. No, nowhere near it. Um, Represented sort of district sides at 13, 14 years old, but no, no, wasn't good enough. Um, That was never in the plans at all. So, no, just fell into the football thing, coming out of university with Gary, really. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, wasn't wasn't a good player at all. No, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just completely shut that conversation down as soon as anyone uh, asked you to to contribute? <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, I said you're a bit wary if we might be listening to this and thinking I played with him, he was awful. 
<laughs> no, no, I was a uh, phone in. Yeah, yeah. No, I played football. I enjoyed football, but never got to any level. Were you ever conscious of that when you were returning the ball to like Dennis Bergkamp or Thierry Henry? And, or <laughs> oh no, no, let's not make it. I was useless. Oh, you could, you yeah, could put oh, it in the right place. Oh no, I could pass the ball back, but yeah, right. you wouldn't have wanted me. No, no, not not to the same level that we were seeing in training and and every match day. No, of course not. So just give people a little bit of a background and how did you make it into the top tier of, of working in football as a physio? Shocking nepotism is the easy answer to that. I qualified 1995 um, from University of Brighton and had planned to go and work in the hospitals in London. Um, guys and Tommies was the plan. And Arsenal needed someone as an assistant to Gary, my cousin, who was at Arsenal at the time, and they got left in the lurch quite close to the end of the season, pre-season. And Gary came over and we had a chat. We actually went to watch West Ham v Leeds, actually, at Upton Park, to have the chat. Um, and he said, look, would you come in? Even if it's just for short term, would you come in and help out next season? You'd be working with the, uh, the youth team and the reserves, as it was then. There was no academy structure at that time, particularly. And... Of course, it was risky. It felt risky at the time because the tradition was to go and do your two, three years junior rotations like every physio, a lot of physios were doing at that time. And I got some advice from people who I trusted, some lecturers at university, some friends, and they all said, well, you're mad. You, know, you can always come back to London Hospital, go and do it and enjoy it for a year or two. A year or two became 23 and uh, here we are. So, yeah, Probably wouldn't happen nowadays where a cousin was allowed to bring his junior physio cousin in to work with him. But it, it was different times. And I think it was a uh, when it moved quickly into me being involved with the first team after about two to three years. From there, there was no looking back. You know, it was a great job. It was a great place to work out. We started winning things. So once you're in, you're in, you know. It was a very difficult thing to walk away from then. Yeah, okay. So, okay, obviously being related to Gary is a massive help there. But can <clears> I just <throat> lean on that a li- uh, for a minute? Because it, I'm, just, I'm assuming that it's all too easy to assume that you've had a big leg up there. But did you have to carve out your own identity? Were you, you were quite aware of that and um, ensuring that you had to prove yourself irrespective of that link? Yeah, I think a little bit. Obviously you're a naive, fairly newly qualified physio. So <clears throat> you're to learn a lot at the time. Um, Arsenal weren't particularly winning things in 1995. They won cups in 93, um, European bits and pieces just before that, um, lower cups. And Bruce Riott was the manager. And, it, you know, he let us get on with it, same as Arsene Wenger did. And so... I was looking after academy footballers and reserve team footballers and just working hard and doing whatever I could to learn from the people I was working with and getting out and doing as many courses as I could. Right. Because I, I was well, you know, I wasn't so stupid to think that I was in a learning environment. Of course I was. I had good people around me, but in hospitals, it was so much more structured. You were working with so many more people. So I was aware I was taking a risk on my learning curve. And so I was just, trying to get out and do as much as I could to learn from as many people outside in that first few years. But I think it came down to just working hard because, you know, you know enough people that work in football, they're long weeks, they're long seasons. So there's not a lot of time off. But when you're in your early 20s, single, you don't need that time off and you just get on with enjoying the role and working hard. So it wasn't about carving out an identity, but it was about working hard to make sure I was at least recognised for doing the job well. Yeah, okay. So did you have a degree of <clears> safety <throat> there in the, the academy setup, where you could cut your teeth a little bit, not, not assuming that you've you got people that you can just make mistakes on, but I guess the, the, the next level up of getting to that first team, you're going to have different pressures upon you. Yeah, I think you're right there. Um, doing reserve team football, working with really good coaches, um, understanding coaches, George Armstrong, people like Pat Rice, I was working with them in the youth team and the reserves. 
and they were good people to work with as well. And you learn a lot from them, not medically, obviously, but you yeah. learn a lot about dealing with people, dealing with difficult situations. Match day experiences were a lot because I was covering reserve team football in the midweek, perhaps another reserve team game around the weekend and often going to the first team game as well and being sat on the bench there as the number two physio. So I was seeing an awful lot of matches. So the match day physiotherapy experience was a really steep curve. I was seeing a lot of games. Um, not that that's a be all and end all, but it was essential and a, a part of your learning. Um, medically and physiotherapy and clinically, I think you had to just do it yourself and work with the people around you because it was quite a tight medical team um, at that time. So you kind of allude there to the fact that, you know, maybe in NHS you could, on, on a rotation, you're going to see a couple of hundred knees in a week uh, or a couple of hundred elbows. And here you're suggesting also that you're going to see a frequency of certain types of injuries, but you're also going to get very familiar with the environment aspect of, of the, the pulse of what happens before a game, what it's like in a dressing room, what it's like, the pressures on you, pressures on the team, pressures on the coaches before the match. What what the sort of insights you've been able to sort of gather in those early years? I think pressure. I think, you know, the first team games, we had a new manager, Bruce Rioch. Within 18 months, there was another new manager, Arsene Wenger, who turned out, he did okay. Did all right, um, didn't he? Yeah. And, uh, I think being in that pressure environment, you learned how to deal with pressure and how to switch off your emotions a little bit. I think as a medical team, you do have to be fairly emotionless. I don't think, you know, speak to the best people in the world of football medicine. Certainly, I think they're very good at maintaining emotions, not getting too happy when it's going well, not getting too sad when it's going badly. Tend to be the sort of metronome of the backroom staff. Uh, and you learn how to do that you do become a bit of an emotionless stone, gradually. Right. As my, my wife would allude to that. Um, <laughs> so it's a, it's a natural, it was a natural gift. You were perfectly cut out for that, were you? I don't know if I was perfectly cut out. That It was drummed into me. It took okay. me coming out of it, 23 years of it, I did realise that that was a personality trait that perhaps had developed in that 23 years is to not get too upset or get too excited. It was... It was a strange thing. So being around those people and learning their day-to-day pressures, especially on match day, was certainly, you know, invaluable experience. Um, <clears throat> working with, at that time, there was an influx of foreign footballers. You know, when I joined Arsenal, there were only three or four foreign players. When I left, you know, 75% of the squad was from 17 different nationalities. So... It wasn't particularly multicultural at that time, but as it went through the years, it did become that. And you get to see the different cultural thoughts around sports medicine and pressure and match day and everything else. And I think that was also invaluable to see, you know, to learn how the different cultures deal with different pressures and different environments. So, yeah, it, it evolved, really. It was a very different club I joined than the one I eventually left. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it, Arsene Wenger was famous for introducing uh, regime improvements in preparation. Uh, you must have seen it gone from quite archaic sort of 1980s football almost through to what we're seeing seeing today as the the modern setup. What are the major changes that you've seen over the years? We wrote an article on this. Funny enough, um, the changes between. 1987, well, I clearly wasn't there. Uh, Gary was there. And we compared it to 2017 when Gary was no longer there and I was. So the same club, 30 years apart. And there were so many differences, um, a lot of similarities, but so many differences. I think the obvious thing to say is the staff size. Um, When you look now at a typical, decent Premier League medical team, you're looking at at least one doctor probably four physios, a couple of massage therapists, S&C coaches, <clears throat> nutrition involvement, psychology involvement. <clears throat> you may even have an admin support or a PA, something like that. There's a lot of people. Back to when I started, there was very few staff. 
and it felt okay at the time. You look back, you think, how did we do it? But it felt okay at the time. So staffing certainly is a massive change. Um, and, and can I just ask you about that in terms of when, when teams start to go <clears throat> almost probably from the top two to five range, which is quite manageable, when it starts to get into double figures, it actually requires some management and coordination so that it's not too noisy in terms of the people who need to make decisions. You know, that, that filtering of insight. So we're not just all piling in with lots of different thoughts and ideas. They have to be channeled. How, yep. how's, that, how's that changed for you? Um, a lot. In the early days, we didn't even have a full-time doctor. So the medical voice was me and Gary. Yeah. And we didn't often disagree. And if we did, it was behind closed doors. When suddenly you've got three other physios who I had working with me, also very experienced physios, um, who had all led teams in their career, um, a very experienced doctor, um, S&C coaches that had worked elsewhere at a decent level as well. Yeah, you're right. You do have to make sure that you – I was head of medical, actually, so a lot of my role was um, managerial as well as clinical. And you're right. You have to get this one voice, this one opinion, and you thresh it out and you encourage. Of course, you encourage contribution. You want that. You want to be able to thresh it out behind closed doors. But it was tough at times. Communication had to be absolutely spot on because – Coaches needed to be given one message. Players especially need to be given one message. And so, yeah, it was, it was a challenge. But if you got good at it and everyone trusted each other, and obviously the most important thing I think in a medical team is the quality of the people, the people skills and the right attitudes, no egos, that was always massive um, in assisting this idea of one message. If you had egos in the team or people that were perhaps a bit difficult as people, personality-wise, I think that made it very difficult. But I was always quite lucky. I always had great physios working with me, um, a great doctor, and everyone trusted each other, which was, you know, perhaps isn't the case in every sports medicine team. So is that so? so you say you're lucky, but I'm, I'm assuming that there was there were certain qualities and characteristics <clears throat> that you were looking for when you were assessing as to whether somebody could come in and, and contribute or take up a post. Yeah. What are the sorts of things that you were looking for? So we did quite a few recruitment processes. They won't mind me naming them. The physios working with me over that period, Simon Harland, Declan Lynch, Ben Ashworth, um, Andy Rolls, Jimmy Haycock, and Neil Reynolds, you know, all people that have led teams, uh, some in rugby, some in football, and all really good apart from being quality physios, first of all, good people. And so did we get the recruitment right? Most of the time, I think we did. Uh, but, you know, there's always guesses. There's always a little bit of fortune around recruitment. You can do all your, what's it called nowadays, uh, soft referencing in the background, trying to find out about people. And you can do a couple of really good interview processes, but you don't always get it right. And with those people... I was always very well backed by the club and given appropriate salaries so that we could go and get the best. We always wanted to improve the medical team. I always wanted to try and bring in people better than me. Some would say that wasn't hard, but <laughs> try and bring in people better than me. Oh, he's humble as yeah. well. He's humble as well. He's, he's, he's uh, just got all his just, just got to slip that one in because someone else will say it. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it helped when you're bringing in people and you're telling them you're coming in, not just coming in to make up the numbers. You're not coming in to be physio number three in our medical team. You're coming in to improve the place. And I think we got it right most of the time. And that largely down to the interview process, largely down to the people doing the interviews and the club for backing us with appropriate salaries that we could go for that better end of people that had led teams. And so would know the pressures I was under and would know the challenges I was facing because they'd done it before. Yeah. So can I ask you about in the other direction in terms of how you found it to be able to challenge the boss, uh, challenge the people in a position of responsibility, whether it's the head coach or an influencer on the team? How did you how did you make sure that perhaps sometimes when there aren't uh, when it is a narrow voice to influence those those top people under those pressures, 
How did you make sure that you were holding a mirror up to them and nudging them in the right direction when perhaps they wouldn't necessarily want to? I think an important thing to say there is timing your run. I think if I've got to speak to a manager about something or I've got to speak to the doc or one of the senior players, you really got to pick your time well. I know it's an obvious thing to say, but we had a lot of time on buses, a lot of time on planes, a lot of time in hotels. So it was sometimes quite easy to time your run well, where if you just drop it in on the bus on the way to a hotel, can I come and see you later on for half an hour? I need speech about something. Get them in a good environment and, you know, using your language well. It didn't happen to me that much, but remember often we had a few difficult things that might have come up. I remember Andy Rolls, it was with me at Arsenal, a physio, and he'd always say, time your run. Make sure you time your run on that. Because often you did only get one run at it. Yeah, especially, okay. if, especially if it was a moody, angry manager, if we'd just been beaten the night before. If you timed your run badly and you were cleared out of the office, don't be so stupid, you know, you wouldn't generally want to go back and hit that again. So I think timing of the conversation in the right environment was vital. Um, other than that, honesty. I think one thing you can say about Arsene Wenger is he would always encourage us to to be honest and tell us what we, what we thought. Didn't always agree, but he wanted our opinion. And so, you know, people can see through a black, can't they? People can see through if you're trying to play them along. Um, so with coaches and managers, I think the environment was big. And coming straight out from Arsene Wenger's office, having had a difficult conversation and going to speak to a couple of senior coaches about what I've just spoken about, was always helpful, you know, just right. not covering my tracks, but making sure they were aware of what I'd done. Okay. Yeah, I think it's, I don't know what you call it, I suppose it's people skills, but it was something that you learn as you go. I suppose you learn from your mistakes, don't you? You only get it wrong a few times. But I think we're always quite lucky with that because he was an understanding, very balanced man and didn't, didn't blow his top often. So you always felt very happy to go and have difficult chats with him. Yeah. Okay. And then, so did you get a sense of when perhaps the results didn't go that way, you go your way or, or that he might've been under additional pressure. Did you get a sense of what you might need to do as one of the support staff that might be mending knees and ankles and so on, but in terms of raising the the mood and um, interacting with the players in a different way to lift the spirits? I think we always tried to, like I said before, we always tried to be very monotone, very keep it the same. Um, we'd be the same with the players the day after a game if we'd won or lost. Um, okay. Because Pat Rice was always running around the dressing room saying, we've got another game in three days' time. You know, forget about that, good or bad, forget about it. We've got another game in three days' time. Um, Picking Arson up when he was down, no, I don't think I'd class myself as good at that. I think we always left that to um, some of the other people that were closer to him, perhaps the coaches. Um, but often try and gauge it going in in the morning. You might chat to a coach and say, how was he today? So <laughs> 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 sort of dip, dip, dip your toe in the water a little bit. But I think, you know, I think every physio and doc in the league has, has been in that position before. How is he? Um no, I don't think it was always, we always had a game three or four days later. And that always helped refocus everyone, really. There was nothing worse than losing and having to wait a week or two for the next game. That was tough. But because we were in Europe for the vast majority of that, if we'd lost on a Saturday, we knew we had a game on the Tuesday or Wednesday. So there wasn't long to, 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 uh, to dwell on it. You had to think about the next one. So it, it wasn't a difficult thing. You know, we all knew we'd have a difficult 24 hours and then we'd go again. Remember when Spurs beat us at the Emirates, one of the only times they ever did it. it must be 2010-ish, 11-ish. And William Gallus came into our dressing room after the game as a Spurs player. And we were, everyone was being very nice and well done, William. And uh, you'd enjoy it, enjoy that result. And he said to us, well, yeah, can I enjoy that result? He said, we've got another game Tuesday. Hmm. He said, but we're training tomorrow, preparing... Tuesday so I can enjoy it for about 12 hours he said and he was right but the same was right for when you lost the game 
you'd, you'd be down for that 12, 24 hours. And you had to go again for the next one. And that's just us as a medical team. God knows how the players felt. Yeah. Okay. And, the co- and the coaches. So so you've, you seem to have taken a, um, a, a dynamic there about the fact that if you've won or lost or the mood, it's going to be trans- transient because you've got another thing coming up. That seems like a, a positive on the roller coaster and what would what you've sort of inadvertently described is is just a relentless environment um can you kind of describe what that's like the demands upon you um for anyone who's not perhaps quite as clued in as to as to what the demands on a physio might be in elite sport i think it always had to come back to the idea what are we there for and we, we were there to win games and you know, we always used to say the win metric trumps all the other metrics. So whether we've had a shocking season of injuries, a shocking season of recurrences, really awful medical decisions throughout a few months period, if we won every game, that was the most important thing. So we, we were there to win games. Um, so that was important to us. There's no point in having a wonderful injury record with no one in the medical room, with no recurrences, if you're losing every weekend. So I think... We had to realise that although we were the medical team, the performance team, as it's now really called with the SNC coaches and everything else, I think all we are there for is to support the team winning games. And I think sometimes that gets lost um, at certain teams in certain sports that I think there are medical teams there now getting on a bus after a game and if there's been no injuries in that game and they've drawn nil-nil, they're happy. Whereas, realistically, you should be getting on that bus with two or three injuries. If you've won the game 1-0, you've done your job. You've won the game. So that's quite hard for people to understand sometimes. And I've had arguments with people about that. So I'm not saying I'm definitely right. But we were always it was always drummed into us. We were there to help the team win. And you said it yourself. Yeah, the roller coaster was, it was odd. So when you're playing Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, if that was win, lose, win, and it happened to be a very tricky defeat with a nasty injury on the Wednesday, you've been high, you've been really low, and you've been high again in seven days, which is a very different environment to working in a clinic or working in a hospital to a level. I'm not trying to demean those, but it's a very different emotional roller coaster and different level of emotions to deal with based on great success Perhaps one player had returned after three months out in that game and scored the winner. So everyone's delighted. You then lose a game unexpectedly. You might have a couple of injuries from that game. You then win the next one and it's, it's up and down. It's so hard to look at it through a lens of, do we look at it through a match? Do we look at it through a week or a month? It, it's hard. Um, but you adapt like every other person does when they've been in the job for a long time. You adapt and you start to realise what's important for you and more importantly, your manager and the team around you. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, and um, I remember reading the article uh, about y- yourself and Gary setting up your clinic and reflecting, but there was also elements of that in the article about the personal cost, you know, missing Christmases, for example, and, um, and that sense of committed to a cause, which ultimately there's probably, you have to give a hundred percent. There's no sort of, can I do part-time aspects of it? And, but also fully committed emotionally. I know you say emotionless, but it has to, it has to matter because you're putting in so many hours. I'm, I'm, I'm appreciating. Yeah. I think probably emotionless is the wrong word. It is, you're massively emotionally invested in it, but I just suppose you don't show it. So you get, you get very good at suppressing those emotions. I think is probably the best way of putting it. But yeah, you're, you're right. You're missing well, every football physio who's there full-time, rugby as well. Other sports, there's weddings, there's stag weekends, there's everything else going on, and you just know you're not going to go to that. So yeah, there's a personal cost. Understanding families is obviously very helpful. I think that's really important to have that, and I think every sports physio would be saying that they probably do have a very understanding other half. Um. Yeah, but you do have to give 100% to it. And if you don't, I think you're you fairly quickly found out. Yeah, okay. Can I just pick up on something you, you mentioned a minute ago about um, uh, 
about this desire to suppress injury. Maybe it could be someone wants somebody to be able to lift a certain amount in a squat. Um, maybe they need to cover more distance on the on the pitch where they might be trying to work to a metric that isn't necessarily complementary or isn't necessarily causative for a, for a winning performance. Um, you're alluding there to to where potentially the the support team uh, aren't necessarily clued in as to what the global purpose of their their roles might be. Is that something you've seen emerge quite a bit there in terms of um, the drift of focus for practitioners? Yeah, I think so. I've not seen it firsthand. I've heard about it. I've spoken to other physios about it. Um, there was certainly a lower league physio who spoke to me about the fact they had a bonus payment tied in um, to number of injuries okay. that, the t- that the team had suffered that year. And it made no sense to me whatsoever because it's not the physio's fault the player's getting injured, that's for sure. He might be part of it, but that physio, if he's chasing that bonus payment, which is ridiculous, he's going to be very, very, very careful with those players. And if he, he's not going to take risks with a player for an important game if he's got one eye on this injury list bonus, which, which is nuts. Reward the physios and the S&C coaches and the backroom team, the doctors, massage therapists. Reward them if you like, but reward them based on the team's points so that everyone's pulling the same direction. We must win on Saturday. The idea that each department was being rewarded for getting their bit right just didn't sit right. And I think it is a bit more widespread nowadays. You know, fitness coaches thinking they're doing their job because they've got the team that runs the furthest. That might just be good recruitment. Yeah. I, th- I think otherwise we end up living in the silos, an S&C team, a doctor, a medical team, and the coaches over there trying to win the game. So I don't think that works very well. I certainly never saw it at Arsenal. Um, but it does go on. I'm not saying it's widespread for one minute, but I've heard about it. And I hope it isn't going that way, that medical teams, physios especially, are taking pride in their injury record. when it's very unlikely that injury record is their fault or it's impressive on them that they've achieved that good injury record. It's good recruitment for recruiting players that are strong, fit, good injury history, the right age. Um, it's, it's good training from the coaches and the S&C coaches to get the scheduling right and to get the, the gym work right. But medical teams taking credit or abuse for good or bad injury records doesn't sit right. Recurrence yeah, okay. rates, re- rates, maybe, but perhaps not injury right. rates. Okay. Yeah, so it's data to to reflect on. And I remember coming out of um, 2012 games and and the feedback was, you know, thousands of number of days lost to injury from the team that went to the games. And I think up on high, probably at government level as much as anything, but to come down, came down to say, this needs to be zero. And I said, well, look, okay, we can get that to zero. We could get that number of days potentially to certainly to injury, maybe not to illness, down down to very low levels. Uh, we could put them on stationary bikes, maybe 20 minutes of exercise per day. That's it. No one's going to run fast. Uh, our job is to try and push the limits of human performance. Yeah. <laughs> that will mean we don't know whether they've overcooked it. We don't know whether they've undercooked it. And and we won't know until they've, they if they've undercooked it until we've actually pushed them a bit so that that sense of that breakdown you've got to have those those simple signals as to you know feeling a bit tight or uh, feeling a bit under the weather and so therefore recovery packages kick in or additional treatment kick in kicks in to to be able to just help somebody get the right side of of fatigued or having that injury risk uh, flare up Um, and you're not going to get it right every time no. And I think I think medical teams need to agree with the manager what's a reasonable recurrence rate. If I'm rehabbing 10 hamstrings in a season and not one of those hamstrings recurs, am I hanging on to them too long? Could I have got all 10 of them back 
three days earlier so that all 10 of them perhaps contributed to a game sooner but then one of them broke down is that success is that failure I think that needs to be a conversation had between managers and medical teams but if I'm sending 10 hamstrings back and eight of them are breaking down clearly I'm doing something horribly wrong and sending them back under rehabbed or too early but I think to, to have no recurrences in a season no one's Superman I think you're probably hanging on to them for too long right okay I mean it, uh, have you been able to make sense of that risk management where the pressure to return somebody who could be a game changer that can that can come on off the bench or or start starting eleven and actually make a, a real difference to the points you accumulate over a series of games versus um, it's a bit too early. Had, have you been able to make sense of that that risk versus the reward of getting players back? No, no, I don't think anyone has. I think each one is individual for sure. I think we're stupid to, if we class them all as a group. I think you can't group all hamstrings together because one might be in your 17-year-old, one may be in a 35-year-old. They're, they're all so different. Um, definitely individual. Definitely everyone has to be in agreement of the risk. We always used to say at Arsenal that we were just risk analysis, really. We were just analysing risk and giving people information about what we believed was the educated, informed risk of them breaking down that weekend based on opinion, experience, certain data sets from the S&C coaches, certain data sets from sports science, GPS, sprint distance, sprint speed, that sort of stuff. And we would use as much data as we could to inform those opinions. So all we were was risk analyzers, but each one had to be individual. I don't think we ever got it completely right in a season. And sometimes you won't ever know. You hold on to a player from a game this weekend, you're never going to know if he would have played and scored the winner. So, no, we'd never made sense of it. I think every year that went past, we got better at it. But because it was an individual thing, it sometimes took you a little while to get to know a player. Yeah, okay. But I think it was everyone's opinion was worthwhile. I think a manager had to be comfortable with the, uh, the risk of playing them because they may have played, but they may have been awful physically. So it's so complex and so multifactorial. I think it was. I think it's hard for anyone to ever say I've made sense of that. So what are you dealing with there? Are you are you thinking about probabilities? I'm I'm thinking of risk analysis, and I'm thinking about uh, insurance companies and betting sophisticated um, a- analysis of the probability of of, a, of something occurring. I mean, I, uh, that's that's a direct question, but also. I'm curious to know what the common language that you might use. Do you have to agree on that language about this is a 90%er or this is a 10%er? How did you convey that? I think the first thing we have to recognise is that the coaches wanted to see them in training for at least a day or two, ideally more, before that match. So it wasn't just us sticking our finger in the air. Okay. The manager would see them train for that day or two beforehand and you know, he would make his own opinion on what he's seen in training. Now, we could give them evidence saying he has hit 95% of his top speed three times this week. So we know he can sprint in a controlled environment, not in a stadium, not too fatigued. But you could give them a lot of information. But yeah, it did end up being, how sure are you that he can play? And if there was any doubt, it did end up becoming a chat for physio and doc fitness coach sometimes, manager, and don't forget, player. We could all be telling that player, you're fine, you're fine, you're fine. If he didn't think he was ready for the Saturday, what would would be the point of throwing him to the wolves? I think um, we've seen that before as well, where he's passed every test and he gets on the pitch on a Saturday and his performance is awful. So I think it comes in grades of how is his performance going to be? between really good for 90 minutes down to limited minutes, down to his performance being so bad with the ultimate poor performance being re-injury. So, yeah, the common language, I don't really know. Right. You're, always trying, you're trying to steer away from sticking a percentage on it because you're held to it, of course. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, but you, have to, you have to give an opinion. And yeah. 
I think with the squad size we had at that time, I think it's much harder lower down the leagues when the squad size isn't quite the same. I think if our right back was missing and we're thinking about putting him back in, our second best right back was also a very good player. Right. So you had to weigh up that as well. Yeah, okay. Are, Gosh, are, you, dynamics. are you going to play your best right back and what you think is an 80% risk, whatever the number was, which we made up, um, or are you going to put the second best one in? Now, lower down the leagues, that second best right back may be a 16-year-old kid. So the conversation, you're right, it's so multifactorial and the different dynamics are so individual for each one that there wasn't one recipe book we could get out. No, and, and I suppose, I mean, it, it touches on the, just the psychology of your support as well, in that if you're picking up those signals of somebody's feeling a little bit um, under the weather or they're showing other signs of fatigue that you've only been able to observe over the course of maybe a couple of years that, that pick, you pick up as a as a trend, as a subjective signal, or it might be their own hesitancy because they've had numerous recurrences. So you've got to try and coax yeah. them. There's multiple psychological inputs as well to, to find that right balance to encourage the player or to, to hold them back. Exactly, or hold them back. You're saying about coax them. Sometimes you might be holding them back. I mean, we can have all the metrics in the world, all the data in the world, and it is growing, it is getting better and better. But asking a player, do you think you're ready? It's probably worth more than the GPS stuff that he's got from training that day. So the communication stuff, the people skills, chatting to people, you're never going to really substitute that, I don't think. I think that has to be done really well. And that's where the trust comes in and gets better and better, the better you get to know a player who may have been there five years rather than five weeks. Did you find you were able to make better decisions at different times of the, the season. I'm just thinking about your own physical and mental well-being and health and so on. And um, we've talked about how relentless and how tiring and fatiguing the, the season could be. You know, Maybe there's greater injury risk for a player around fi- fixture congestion, but how did you look after yourself so you're able to, to get yourself in the right place to make the, these key calls? don't know really. I've never really thought about that. I don't think it wasn't just me. You had other physios with you. You had their opinion. You had doctors, S&C coaches, coaches. So, no, I don't think I've really thought about that. I just think the communication had to be so good. We'd be having conversations on the way home on the plane from Europe, perhaps, about a game that Saturday, who might be available, who isn't. So, no, I never felt that I wasn't making good decisions because I was tired, angry, whatever. It comes down to that emotion suppressing again, I suppose. But mm-hmm. now, now you've asked that, I don't know the answer to it. I, it never really occurred to me, to be honest. Okay. Maybe, maybe you're well-suited in that sense. You don't, I, I don't know. I think, we, you know, we spent a lot of time travelling, like I said. So we had a lot of face time with managers, coaches and each other. So perhaps we just discussed things well enough to not have to make these decisions on the hop. Yeah, okay. Do you miss it, Colin? Yeah, some of it. Some of it, certainly. I think, you know, the pressure of match day, I think there's a game tonight. Can we talk about that tonight, even though we're not going <laughs> to... Yeah, the these, these are going to be going out at different yeah. times, but okay. yeah, you can... At, at the time of recording, there is, the a, recording. <laughs> there is a, a very big game tonight for Arsenal. So I think to be part of those games, to be part of that environment, you know, we spoke about it briefly before. I think pressure is a privilege. I've heard people say that, and I agree with that. So I do miss the pressure situations. I do miss the the ups and downs of a week. I miss working with other physios and good strength coaches, massage therapists, good doctors, because you learn from each other every day, be that clinically or, or personally. So, yeah, there's lots I miss. Um, I don't miss some of the politics I don't miss the very long season with very little time off. But yeah, I think everyone working in it, I think you could ask anyone who's been in it a long time, I think you get the same answer. Yeah, okay. So there's a there's a fatigue and there's a cost aspect, so now you can enjoy life a little bit more. <laughs> but I'll get, sun, I'll get Sundays off. <laughs> you get Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds as though that pulse and that excitement and I guess the, you know, 
having 60,000 fans or cheering or creating that atmosphere, it's intoxicating in that sense that, that um, there's a vibe to it that you just can't help but enjoy. Yeah, I think you felt part of something. And, you know, whether that's a League Two team or a Premier League team, I think you felt part of something. And when it went well, and it often did go well in the time I was there, not always, but it often did go well, you felt part of it. And so, yeah, there was an awful lot of memories created from that where things went really well. And, you know, the photos and the videos and the memories you get of that as a team working together. I worked with, you know, I see a lot of different people come and go in that time, but working with someone like Gary O'Driscoll for for 12, 13 years, you're going to learn from someone like that. The physios I work with, S&C coaches, Shared foresight, Barry Solon. You're going to learn from those people and share these great days with them and, and the awful days, of course. But yeah, you're always going to miss that part of it. Yeah. So, so sort of looking back now, but also, I guess, stepping out, does that give you a bit of perspective and get a sense of, you know, where do you see the gaps in performance support? teams and, and, and setups now where do you see those gaps that actually if you were to go back in or to advise where you'd be sort of ca- cajoling people to be focusing on yeah that's a good question um, I think we have to be really careful with the number of staff the number of support staff I've heard it said a fair bit in the last few years at some stage that balloon the bubble has got to burst how many is too many so I think we're going to come to that in the next few years of to what is the ideal, for example, physiotherapist to player ratio. What is the ideal? Is it one to seven? Is it one to six? In some sports, it's more. In some sports, it's far less. Um, so that'd be interesting to go and look at that. I think the pressure of external therapists and external fitness coaches right, okay. is, is something that's going to be very tricky and it's only going to get worse, I would think. And I say worse, that's not me saying it's an awful thing, but it's another challenge for a, a doctor and a physio and a strength coach to deal with that their player contracted to their club is getting a lot of advice from outside that often is under the radar. So I think that's going to be a big challenge. And the only way you stop that, I think, is to provide an absolutely unbelievably bulletproof service to them within the club. And that isn't always possible due to various budgets and various pressures elsewhere. So that that's something that will be interesting to look at and to speak to players and agents. Why are you doing that? What do you feel is missing at the club that you feel the need to do that? I know in some clubs, especially in Europe, it, it's, it's rife. It's unbelievable. Players bring right. in their own fitness coaches to the training ground and their own physios. And can you imagine the mess that creates in communication? I remember, um, I think it was Neil Warnock when he was at Cardiff, was asking his physio if a player was fit. And the physio had said, yeah, I think he's fine. And the player's personal physio had said, I don't think he's ready for Saturday. And Neil Warnock went public with it and said, we think he's right, but his physio doesn't think he's ready yet. His physio from Spain doesn't think he's ready yet. I mean, what a mess. Mm. So I think that side of it is, is a very difficult thing to manage. We didn't have it too badly at Arsenal. To my knowledge, I'm sure it was happening, but it, it was never a massive challenge to us. But I think it is going to get worse. Yeah, okay. So the fragmentation of support with a player who's got the the means to recruit and fully control and appoint their their own support team. Yeah. Perhaps a and, little bit like and, an entourage in that sense. Yeah, and they're doing they think they're doing their best for themselves. Of course they do. I don't think it's ever malicious. When we see people in the clinic here from clubs, we always insist that the club's medical team know about it and we speak to them first so we don't come across as the enemy suddenly I know how they're feeling yeah. so we want to make sure that we're not that background whispering in the players ear you're not ready or you need to do this I can't believe they're doing that to you so we make sure that that's done here because we know what it feels on the other side um, but yeah I mean you must have seen it in the sports you've been working with where it's not so necessarily a club sport it is more individual yeah, I certainly think that there's um, there's a little bit of um, oh look over there that looks shiny um, when and I remember getting told off a bit, Rich, but I remember getting 
some harsh words from a coach. Why didn't you tell us about this? Why didn't you tell us about that? I said, well, okay, here's the review I've done for this particular initiative. Uh, here's why I didn't actually introduce it to you because I don't think it has any performance benefit. And so what I've actively done is deselect this away from your attention. So what, rather than telling you about all the decisions I'm, I'm making on your behalf, uh, we're sort of re- just, just trying to cut down the noise for you. Um, when actually you've, they've got lots of different voices in their, in their heads about, oh, this is coming up. There's big games. There's an opportunity. Why not take it? It's not yeah. going to do any harm. Those sorts of things. When actually what the coach need is clarity. They need con- confidence in the decisions that they're making. They are, they are going to have the biggest effect, not necessarily trying to gather up hundreds of things. And this is one of the th- problems, I think, with marginal gains approach. Yeah, it ends up being hundreds of things that become distracting. And perhaps someone who, you know, I'm, I'm sure that a lot of players do their own reading or they do their own, um, you know, they do their own scrolling. But do they then have the, the wherewithal to be able to filter that and rather than just leap into the shiniest thing, actually have somebody who is able to support them and say, don't worry about that. Don't focus on it. It's not going to help you. So two things there. I think the marginal gains idea I think it relies on the idea that you really are getting your basics right. Yep. And I'm not sure. We massive, always the massive gains. Get the massive gains sorted yeah, first. The boring. Exactly. And, and I'm sure every sport, every physio, every doctor would admit that their club isn't getting the basics 100% right. So we always had that discussion amongst ourselves that, you know, are we getting the basics right first? Stop worrying about those compression socks for the next two days. Let's get the basics right. Yeah. Other adjuncts are available apart from compression socks <laughs> and the other thing at Arsenal in 2014-15-ish I brought in Alan McCall I don't know if you know Alan and he was brought in as our R&D consultant and we basically gave him one of his roles was to sense check everything we were sent so we'd be getting one or two emails a week with the, the latest great product that your club must have because it does this it does this we're working with NASA as they always were and um what do you think about this? So we didn't have the time or the headspace to deal with it. So Alan would get all of them and he would do basically a graded recommendation on whether it was something worth investigating or whether it was complete rubbish. So at least we got a bit of a sense check, some evidence check. And you can imagine 90% of them were zero evidence. Don't waste your money. Don't waste your time. Forget about it. But one in 10, we would come back and say, there might be something here. There's, There's some evidence around this. Why not try it? And as you said, everything's shiny. I remember the first time a player said to me, why haven't we got a cryo chamber? And how'd you answer that? Hmm. So we went away, we sense checked it, we gathered all the evidence, which as you know, isn't wonderful. It's certainly grey. But we still ended up getting a cryo chamber because it, it was considered by the powers that be and other people around us that will come on, let's try it. Why not? It might be something. But the grading recommendation was patchy, to say the least. Yeah. Okay. And so, yeah, that, that helped us eke out some of the rubbish we were sent over the years was to give it to Alan McCall and say, let us know about that. Go and send to check it. Mm. Yeah, I suppose that's quite a complex one, isn't it? Because you almost got um, keeping up with the Joneses arms race. Exactly, of, yeah. Um, I've just come from that club. They've got one of those gadgets over there that I tried yep. it and it was all right. Or yeah. I'm drawing a, a linear association between having to go on an alter G treadmill, for example, and recovering my yeah. hip. Um, and so that's something I now need. And you've, you're then now having to manage another bit of kit or another service contract, another <laughs> practitioner to run it. Yeah. Um, when the budget, sure. the budget behind it. Yeah. And that's where Alan, really helped us out and it also get expert opinion as well it wasn't just what's the evidence yeah we go and find expert opinion because that's valuable um and yeah it, it was good just saved us missing out on some decent stuff first of all rather than thinking oh here we go again but it also helped us at least say to the players look you asked about this product that's the evidence shut up <laughs> not shut yeah. up but you know yeah leave it now so what's the solution what's the solution for players having their own entourage support team nutritionists and um 
vitamin injectors or whatever it might be to be able to try and get some sense and clarity for a club that's trying to push the boundaries, trying to trying to win more, um, when you might have the system pulling different directions away from that? No easy answer to that, that's for sure. I think providing a bulletproof gold standard service at the club with great people, the right number of people in a great facility is the obvious thing to say. Now, how many clubs have got that out of the 92? I'm not sure how many have got that, all three of those. Um, education, I think, and that's of players, that's of agents. I think a level of education might help. But, you know, how much of this is now cultural? How much of this is a player thinking he must have his own massage therapist and must have his own physio because that's what LeBron James did? You know, it's very, very difficult. And how hard do you criticise that player who might just come with the opinion, but I'm trying to do everything I can to be as good as I can. You're not going to be here at 7pm at night. I might want some extra work at 7pm at night. What do you suggest? It's not easy. But in the one or two I did come across when we were at Arsenal, I made sure I spoke to them. Um, Kept them on side, made sure we knew what they were doing, made sure they knew what we had done that day. Um, help them out with any education they needed around MRI reports and stuff like that. You're better to have them, your arm around them, basically. It's better to have them on the inside of the tent. Hmm. I think uh, it's probably going to get worse. It's probably going to get much harder to manage. It's another facet for the head of medical to deal with. But uh, to eradicate it, first of all, is that right? And secondly, will it ever happen? Probably not. <laughs> So rather than head of R&D, you've got head of outreach or something. Yeah, I don't know. I genuinely don't know what you do. We, um, Dick, Law used to be, Dick Law used to be our head of contracts at Arsenal. When we signed new players, it might often come up that that player said, well, I'm, I'm bringing a, a therapist friend of mine as well. Right. He's, come, he's going to come over. Um, anywhere we can put him or where can he work at the training grounds? And it happened once or twice. And Dick Law said to the agent and the player, look, you check your baggage at the door. You come in, we've got a medical team, we've got that, we've got that facility, you've seen the facility, we think it's good, you check your baggage at the door. So when suddenly Arsenal weren't paying for that person to come in and they weren't being provided with accommodation and somewhere to work, they often fell by the wayside. But there were definitely examples of people coming over with players and you know, players, when they're having to pay for that, slowly sometimes the, the novelty wears off Right. But it was always good of Dick Law and Arson to say, listen, you're not bringing any of that in. No one comes to the training ground. We've got our team here. So that's not going to happen. And often that was enough to put them off. But hmm. every club's got that challenge. Yeah, okay. Uh, I suppose it's in some ways it's not just, you know, your ability on the on the pitch. Uh, it's the characteristics you lend to the dressing room or that leadership quality or the personality fit that might, you might be looking for as well as what what's the history or that you might do from a medical side as well as the fact that is this just going to be a hassle to work with yeah. over time yeah yeah true yeah interesting uh fascinating stuff colin i really appreciate you sharing your insights and um sharing that that those intense dynamics of of what it's like what, what's what's next for you um develop the clinic really so Myself and Gary and another physio, Laura, we work in a clinic in East London, Essex, Borders, um, www.lewinclinic.co.uk if you want to check it out. Yeah, check um, it out. It's on Instagram. We're at the Lewin Clinic and Twitter and basically develop this clinic. I think um, improve what we've got here. We've got a thousand square foot gym, which is great. So there's a great rehab area and the main focus here now is to, to develop this into a, a good level physio service to give the level of elite athlete support to everyone really um, we're going to develop that a bit further hopefully to get CQC accreditation in the coming months so we can have sports med consultants here ultrasound scanning and stuff like that private GPs which is going to be a, the next step forward but other than that no just any little consultancies, there's a few bits and pieces going on. We're doing soccer aid in a few weeks' time, which is always good fun. 
Um, and yeah, little consultancies here and there, really. But develop this and see what happens, see how far we can push this clinic. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, wishing you all the best with it. I hope, I hope, I'm sure it goes from strength to strength with uh, the background that you've got and uh, that energy. So thank, thank you so much, Colin. Much yeah. appreciated. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Top stuff. Cheers. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen i really hope you enjoyed this week's conversation now we've got plenty more to come so if you'd like to support and champion us then take the time to subscribe and leave a review on spotify itunes stitcher youtube or wherever you tune in you can also give us a follow on twitter instagram and linkedin all the links are in the show notes so in the meantime have a great week mm-hmm.